it really opened the world to me. I never thought that I, first of all, could be a writer, that second of all, anyone would publish me, and third of all, that I could be writing about the thing that I care about the most. Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Every episode, I'll sit down with one person who has journeyed to do the extraordinary. And on this episode, I'm speaking with Liz Plank. I've spent the last five years thinking and speaking and doing videos about what it means to be a woman and what kinds of expectations that we place on women. Liz Plank is a journalist who spends her free time grappling with the complicated and tangled concept of gender identity and how it plays out in society. And this is a special episode because at the end of my interview with Liz, I'll take a petite dive into women in history and a conversation with Jenny Kaplan, the podcast host of Encyclopedia Womanica. What a feminist looks like, uh, what feminism means has changed so significantly over history and around the world. It's fun to see how that shifted over time. Before we get knee-deep into the OG trailblazers, we'll start with Liz. Liz is a senior correspondent at Vox, and she's appeared on almost every major television network from CNN to BBC. She's covered elections in both the U.S. and Canada, and always with an infectious energy, humor, and casual air, even if she's interviewing Ronan Farrow or Justin Trudeau. Last fall, Liz published her book, For the Love of Men, A New Vision of Mindful Masculinity, which asks, how can we make it okay for men to have their social revolution too? The feminist movement didn't tell women you all have to be high-powered CEOs. Feminism didn't tell women you all have to be the best mom. Uh, Feminism told women that they could choose one of those things. Or that they could choose to be both of those things. Or that they could choose to be neither of those things. Liz's writing career took off when a Change.org petition she made went viral. It challenged the requirement for female boxers to wear skirts while competing during the 2012 London Olympic Games. Spoiler alert, they reversed the decision and they didn't wear skirts. So Liz stepped up into her role as writer and now as kind of a commentator. So when we met, I wanted to ask about her book and I wanted to ask her about how she balances her mission as a journalist with her feminist values, all while working in front of the public eye and in front of cameras almost every day. So I'll jump in and ask you, Liz, can you describe what you do and why it's important to you? I never thought I'd end up in journalism. I was really into feminism, into uh, advocacy and activism. So I went into women's studies and I did a master's in gender theory. And I thought, I don't know, that maybe I'd do a PhD and be alone in a lab, uh, some gender lab. I don't know what, how, what the labs, how the lab w- works. But um, but yeah, it was very isolating actually to do my master's, um, and it was a tough year. And you did your master's at the London School of Economics. I did, yes, and I didn't know anyone there. It was like a whole, you know, it was it was, it was a hard year. And so, but at the same time, that's also the year that I really started to realize um, how amazing social media was and how crucial it could be for the work um, that I didn't even know that I could do. Honestly, I never thought that this could be a job uh, that pays for my rent. But um, I started to see the the value of that in the world because, yeah, it was the 2012 Olympics. Uh, women were going to be uh, boxers for the very first time 
female boxing was not a discipline wait, in wait. the Olympics uh, prior to 2012. This if you is can believe a, it. actually you're you're a boxer. Yeah. Well, oh, my God. That's like not that's fake news. Uh, I <laughs> wouldn't even call myself a boxer. I was an amateur. Like I, you know, I didn't uh, compete, but I was uh, learning and, and sort of developing my skills in, in boxing with a coach. Uh, so I noticed uh, in the news that they were going to force female boxers to wear skirts for the Olympics because they wanted them mm-hmm. to be more elegant. I mean, you're talking to someone who played lacrosse in both high school oh, wow. and college. And so we were yeah. required to wear skirts over our Under Armour spandex. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And not only were That's they skirts, but it was like they didn't even know how women actually wear skirts. So they're the kilts that button in two places. It wasn't. It was uh, impractical (laughs) in addition to being ridiculous. But it's interesting how this was a microcosm, but it's part of a a larger problem in women in sports. Well, I started a, a petition around this. And I was that's how I wrote my first article. I basically right. wrote about this so petition. This was in 2012. You're in London. And, and if I were to make like a Rocky, like Liz Plank <laughs> mashup <laughs> montage of this image, I could like see you like in the quote unquote gender lab. <laughs> then boxing. In a way, you were perfectly positioned for your change.org petition mm. because you were at the intersection of learning what feminism I mean, you're probably writing and learning a lot about where you come into the evolution of feminism. And you also are just completely as a human pissed off. But I uh, was especially angry with this uh, with this particular uh, news item. And Change.org basically asked me to write an article. And I Uh verbatim told them I'm not a writer. And they were like, no, just write it. It'll just be for our website, like low stakes. And I was uh, so I agreed. And I was used to just kind of talking about it with my friends or talking about it, you know, at in my gender studies classes with people who already kind of agreed with me. And then they the next day, you know, after I, got, I was on their website, I was pretty proud of myself. I was like, wow, I'm on WeChange.org. And then they uh, sent me a, a link and were like, we it got published by The Huffington Post. So you've written a book. For the Love of Men, A New Vision of Mindful Masculinity. It has actionable steps for how to be a man in the modern world and also explores how to be a man in the world that is evolving. Mm -hmm. Radical change is scary, even if radical change is good. And even if radical change is where we all know that we need to be, it can be something that constantly feels like a fight, even though it shouldn't be. That's why I wanted to put love in the title. I wanted to be very clear that I want this for men. I'm not doing this against men. That's what I'm excited about the, the most, um, seeing where men can can take this um, and, uh-huh. and grow this. When looking at your, and I think it was in 2013, you wrote like over 20 reasons why feminism has like helped men. Yeah. Actually, let me use an anecdote. For the American Disabilities Act, mm. uh, there were so many people who opposed it. Mm. Now, I'm going to paraphrase, and I'm sure in your writing you would like say this much more elegantly, but... No, I already love this before. <laughs> so when you have a curb sidewalk, it doesn't just help people in wheelchairs, but it helps you with you have if you have luggage, if you mm-hmm. have a stroller. I'm sure a lot of people have used that dip in the sidewalk more times than they can count. Mm-hmm. And they don't resent the reason that we mm-hmm. legislatively 
pushed mm. for our world to be designed in a way that is better for everyone. Mm. But when we use what makes the world better for women as a way to showcase how it makes the world better for men as well, mm. we're really getting to the heart of what how we're disrupting the patriarchy because it's a misnomer or a misconception that controlling the resources or controlling the story and that means even wearing you know the limited uniform of a man or the limited haircut of a man or the limited voice range that men should have expanding that notion can really open up the creativity and the doors for all kinds of people mm. and all kinds of men yeah and that's exactly how uh, I want people to see this I, I think that's such a great example to talk about the ADA and the resistance to that and how hard people with disabilities had to fight for that law that feels, in my opinion, so small. This was a law that was so fundamentally important and so basic in what it was demanding. And people with disabilities literally had to put their their, their lives on the lines and their bodies on the line. We're all uh, benefiting from their activism, from their creative uh, approach to activism. been so crucial. They've been so crucial. And... Um, we talk about it as if it only benefited a small fraction of our society. The uh, sidewalks is one example of that. If you enjoy your phone, if you enjoy the internet, if you enjoy texting, that is because of people with disabilities. And so that is a benefit to your life as a non-disabled person. And that's why um, it is ridiculous for you not to join the movements of quote unquote identities that you might not identify with. And obviously that's the whole point I'm trying to sort of make mm -hmm. with this book, which is um, laying out all of the benefits and all of the ways that men benefit from gender equality. What in here is a personal anecdote where someone could really understand you a little bit more? Oh, well, I mean, the passage about my dad, I think it's my favorite passage. And I start off with a little story about my father. Uh, so so I, maybe I can, read, I can yeah. read that or I can just talk about it. But um, Why don't you read it? Okay, awesome. When I was little, our nightly ritual would end with him making my stuffed monkey converse with me in English because I grew up mostly speaking French. Emma was my first monkey, and she had a special place in my heart because she would never turn down a request for a conversation. Emma would ask me about my day. She would ask me about how I was feeling. And when I had full-blown meltdowns, she would prop my door open with her head and always crack some sort of joke to make me smile. I remain convinced that if more adults had pretend pet monkeys, their loved ones could make talk. We'd all save a lot of money on therapy. The story about my dad matters because for far too many children, it's not the norm. While we expect moms to be nurturing, we don't always expect the same for dads. My father's parenting style never felt particularly unique or special to me because it was all that I knew. But when I would see people's reactions and shock at my father's behavior, it became apparent to me just how unconventional he was. It highlighted one of the biggest lies that we perpetuate about men, that they're not naturally good at taking care of others, let alone their own children. Um, when I hear you say that, it really strikes a chord personally with me. My, my dad was the one who drove us, picked us up from practice. Same. My dad was yeah. the one who, you know, convinced me that I could switch from pads to tampons <laughs> and it didn't matter Ideal. how it didn't matter how many tampons you use to wow. try to get it successfully wow. but you don't want to just walk around feeling it oh, <laughs> that's so sweet yeah and by the way we had a genre reveal uh book party because i wanted to flip the script on gender reveal parties so we had a book kind of shower actually for my book and my dad made waffles in montreal froze them 
drove all the way to New York and served them to my friends uh, last Sunday. Yeah. After learning about him, I expect no nothing less. less. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was also easy for him. Yeah. Like I you mean, said, they're his love language. It's true. Right. It's true. It's really the way that he shows he cares in you many know, other ways, too, obviously. But one of the things that the, your book and really your current work is making me think about is how um, I've always and I don't even know when this idea started, but I've always been really convinced that I've I, I was lucky that even though I might have to prove or work twice as hard that I'm smart, but I get to mm. wear whatever I want and I get mm. to like sing and laugh and cry and be touchy in public. Mm. And men aren't really allow a lot yeah. of that same. But what? why do all the <laughs> men deserve you? Why do they get you? Oh, that's so sweet. I want to know. Why. A lot of men think they don't. It's always been hard for me to get trolls and, and to get uh, people who, you know, believe that I should not be talking or writing about the things that I write about. But it's it's been particularly difficult to get a lot of, of men's pushback on this book. And there's women pushing back, believe me. But I, I think it's, I love your question because I think it makes me feel better about and validated in what I've decided to dedicate the last four years of my life to, which is, in my opinion, in this book, what I'm trying to do is, is help men heal and um, understand themselves and discover themselves. And and what I'm trying to do is, is really support them. But I think for, for a lot of men, a lot of men on, in my comments, it is seen as a, as a threat or that I'm telling them, this is how you're going to be. This is what you're not allowed to do anymore. And I'm really not interested in telling men how to be men. My sort of beginner's mind, I guess, to masculinity actually allowed me to ask very simple questions um, that would allow the, the men that I would speak to to have very long, thoughtful reflections and, and then take that conversation and have it with the men in their lives or the boys in their lives. My hope is that the way to, quote unquote, pay me back is to take this as as a seed and grow it into into a beautiful plant or a flower. Um, take it into your own lives and share it with the own people in your life and this is such, a, you know, it's the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more to talk about. And that's what I would love. That's what I'm excited about the, the most, um, seeing where men can, can take this. You've really done the gambit. And in Divided States of Women, you also have a co-host who's conservative. You try to demystify and bust myths, whether it's you know, an abortion is not actually a surgical procedure. It takes less than 20 minutes mm -hmm. um, and you don't need a surgical place to do mm -hmm. it all the way to talking about more nuanced aspects of American economy. And I was curious if we could hear a little bit about how we can use the media looking mm. at you, Vox, I, I guess you do this, mm -hmm. how we can use media to really quiet the horse race yeah. and yeah. have deeper conversations and real dialogue, not just sound bites yeah. about our differences. What is one thing that we can do from a news standpoint to really um, make things uh, a little bit more civilized? Yeah, that's a question I am really grappling with right now. And to be completely honest, I, I don't have, I usually have somewhat of a solution or like a plan for how to fix things that I see you know massive problems with and the media uh feels like really feels like a hard problem for me spiritually to be completely honest to because I'm part of it at the same time I'm also seeing the decay of media I mean I don't have a better word for it the 24-hour news cycle was invented for a hurricane a plane crash 
or a presidency like Donald Trump's. And so what we're seeing is, unfortunately, the news media not being able to solve a problem. Their, their job is to cover it. And they don't know how. They really don't. When you talk to people, they say, well, why don't you cover the real policies and the real issues? And of course, that's true. How many people would watch that realistically? And, and my point there is not that news should be entertaining. But our job as journalists is not just to make sure that the information that we're providing is useful and important and accurate, but also to make sure that people are reading it and consuming it and understanding it. Right. If I create a piece of uh, if I create a video about climate change and I uh, perform this report and that my mom watches it (laughs) and you watch it and no one else does, I don't think I've done my job as a journalist. If uh, a ton of people watch it, but they misunderstand it or they don't understand the, the, the real issues and what's at stake, then I don't think I've done my job as a journalist. Or is our job as journalists to believe that people are doing the best they can, but we need to provide them with the information to make their own decisions on their own accord? What I don't love is that I'm seeing a president who is, no matter where you feel in terms of his policies and where you stand politically, you can still objectively say the media is making themselves a character in that drama. And journalists should never be, should never be a character. CNN, MSNBC, these big news organizations should not be making themselves a character in the story. And they do. And I get it. It's ego. It's, that you know, he's coming, is so important. Yeah, he's coming after us. So we're going to, you know, but I can't stand what's going on. I can't stand the news. And I know a lot of people who feel the same way. There was an experience, I think, when you were in a cafeteria, maybe 14. I'm wondering if you can tell us about that. Oh, my God. Sorry. I don't know. You know more about me than I I'll rephrase. I'll rephrase. About my own life. (laughs) I'll rephrase. Um, Have you ever been called a slut? And do you remember, if so, how old you were? Oh, my gosh. Yes, of course. I was called a slut in French because I went to school in French. And And it was... Comment dit-on en français? Putain, une putain. Au Québec. In Quebec, we would say... This, that's the French way to say it. The French French say putain. We would just say put, um, which means basically the, the real uh, translation of that is prostitute, which also tells you a lot, right, about everything. But it means you're, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a slur word for slut, um, salope, pitas, all of those are, you know. Do you remember what you were doing? I was doing my homework. Like I was like not, I was, I was. 14. I had a boyfriend and I'm doing big bunny ears right now that people can't see. I mean, I dressed provocatively. I knew that that was what my value was to the boys that I wanted, uh, I think, attention and 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 that I wanted to be seen and, and heard and loved by. I knew that my body was the most important thing about me. Um, and I also... I took the subway when I was really young uh, because my mom worked too a lot and my dad, you know, they were just both working parents and my dad worked at the post office, which was like an hour away and he would commute. So my sister and I took the subway, you know, together. So I was, you know, in the first grade taking the subway with my with my sister who was pretty young. And um, we both recently have talked about, we've never talked about this before, but only a few weeks ago, we actually had this conversation about like, do you remember being sexualized when we were children taking the subway together and that we would be out in the world without our parents and that do you remember not knowing 
what that was and thinking that there was something wrong with you. And that's why people kept staring at you until you realized, wait a minute, men are staring at me. Grown men are staring at me. And sometimes they would talk to us. Sometimes they would, uh, I was, um, you know, uh, groped uh, when I was in the second grade by this guy. Um, and 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 we never talked about that until very recently and it's this really i find a really interesting question with women which is when did you know that you were a sexual object and um it's usually when you were definitely still a child and that's so fascinating to me that i i actually feel like i dealt i had more issues with sexual harassment as a girl as a child than i do as an adult woman um, and to me, that shifts the entire conversation about sexual harassment and like, quote unquote, catcalling. We often talk about it as it, you know, occurs in, uh, you know, adult women's lives. But let's be honest, it's the worst when when you're still a teenager and, and teenage girls. There's some, you know, are are um, the focus of, of a lot of predatory behavior before they even know that that's predatory behavior. Because you're, when you're a teenager, when you're a child, you want to trust adults. You don't know that adults are a threat or can be dangerous to you. Um, and so I don't even know how I got there. Well, this is I your mean, power and talent. No, I think, um, this is, I think this is what's so incredible about wanting to be a dynamic person and growing into who you are sexually and at the same time not being ready for the world thinking of you as a dynamic person and sexually. Yeah. And I think... Uh, actually, I'm going to use a different anecdote that I read about you to kind of connect us to where I want to go. I'm so scared of saying this now. <laughs> what did I um, say? No. <laughs> I read that your that your mother didn't call you beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then parentheses, yeah. of course, she didn't call yeah. me ugly. I'm wondering if you can maybe, if I can ask you point blank, if that is still important to you, being oh. being looked at that way. Being beautiful? Of course. Oh, my gosh. Are you crazy? Um, I mean, not to... It's, it's, this is the heart, I mean, Roxane Gay and so many other, you know, fem, brilliant feminist uh, authors have talked about this, right, being a bad feminist. And that, I think, is such a difficult tension for so many women. Um, and I think for men, it, it, or as we have this conversation around masculinity, that that will be a real big point of tension, which is, do my attitudes and behaviors align with who I want to be in the world? And and I don't remember ever looking in the mirror. And, and again, as a child, we're not talking, we again, talk about body issues. And, and these are all things that affect women oh my gosh uh but holy crap they start so young they start before we even know what's going on Mm -hmm. and before we can be critical of what's going inside our heads right if i uh now today i can have a conversation with that evil voice inside my head that has been basically you know the tape Mm -hmm. of the patriarchy that says you're not good enough you're you take up too much space you're being too loud you're being too big you're all of the things that i think so many women have going through their heads i can have a conversation with that voice because i'm a grown woman who's done a lot of therapy (laughs) and what do you what what do you say to that voice the thing i've been doing this is very recent I make up characters for the evil voices inside my head because it actually makes it easier for me to make fun of them. So Insecure Irene is uh, one that comes back a lot. She's a main character in my head and she's a star of the show sometimes and needs to be, to your point, maybe come back later or a side character. And you know what I do? Because I think that suppressing 
um, I have I have this tendency, I think a lot of us do, of like avoiding things that are uncomfortable, suppressing things that are difficult. So I try and not do that um, and not yell at myself for yelling at myself. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> being mad at myself that I'm mad at myself or being insecure about the fact that I'm insecure. I tell, okay, insecure Irene, how much time do you need? to think about the one word that I said wrong during this podcast um, at iHeartRadio. And then she's going to say, um, I need two minutes. And I'm going to say, okay, go. We got two minutes. And then she goes through, oh, my God, did I say weird? Oh, my God, did I say that weird thing? Was there something in my teeth? I mean, when I said this, did she think that I really meant um, that I didn't like her? Did she think that I, what about the producer? The guy looked at me really weird. And um, and then I let her go. I let her go. I let her go. And then two minutes is down. And I'm like, okay, we're done now. Now it's Liz. Like, I'm at the front seat of the car, and, and you can go in the back, but I'm the one who's going to be driving. And that is actually worked pretty well for me. Um, it's been a couple of weeks, so who knows? I do think it's lifelong work, though. I think that we blame ourselves when, I mean, re- recovery, if you talk about people who have addiction issues or any kind of eating disorders, it, it's not a straight line. You know, it it's really is. Uh, some days you're like, wow, I fixed it. I'm great. I no longer need to eat banana mu- banana nut muffins uh, three times a day. I've recovered from my banana nut uh, muffin addiction. And then some days you that's all you can think about. And that doesn't mean that you haven't progressed. That wow. actually just means that you are progressing because it's not it's it, it's not a it's not linear. So sometimes insecure Irene will show up and like stay for longer, but it doesn't mean that I'm not you know doing the right work with her. <laughs> When we talk about toxic masculinity, we're really talking about um, patriarchy, which is a systemic cycle of men holding power and controlling resources. We're getting better at showcasing how institutions we've built and cultural practices we're accustomed to don't just maintain that status quo, but constantly advance that cause. I was hoping you could help me with some of my toxicity that I've noticed. Uh, Something came up when I was watching your video with uh, when you were interviewing the Canadian politician Kathleen Wynne. Good morning, everybody. Oh, we were Look at you all. So many people showed up. Yeah, thank you for being here, Mr. Prime Minister. It's great to see all of you here. First of all, I want to. Uh, I noticed that you wore a crop top. Mm. Should I notice? Why do I care? <laughs> Can you help me with my toxicity? Oh my gosh. You know what? I think I'm wearing a crop top right now. And you know what's funny? I, um, I was doing this BBC, this annual event that they have around, you know, celebrating women. And they'd asked me to participate in one of the, um, you know, conversations that they had. And so I joined via Skype because it was happening in London. We were, uh, you know, debating these issues of gender equality and female empowerment. And um, then we went to questions. And one of the first questions uh, I got was this woman who... um, basically, you know, said, you know, I like your ideas. I think you're saying great things, but you touched your hair about a hundred times during this interview. So I just want to tell you, you know, to make sure that your message is not lost, you should probably stop doing that or something of the like. And I, this is in front of an audience. I'm not seeing the audience because I'm on some freaking giant screen. Okay. My big face as I'm hearing this woman say this to me. Um, So this was really humiliating for me and embarrassing for me and also showed me that, 
we are all swimming in the system. And you know what? Maybe I shouldn't have worn a crop top interviewing uh, official. No, Maybe I, I should have. I thought of a good phrase. <laughs> I thought of a good phrase, though. Okay, good. Um, I think it says more about you than it says about me. Oh. That's what my friend to- mm. taught me to say when I had yeah. a problem. She was yeah. like, I think that says more about you than yeah. it says about me. Yeah, I love that. So our lightning round, uh, pouvez-vous donner votre introduction en français, s'il vous plaît? Oui, donc je donne mon introduction. Je m'appelle Elisabeth Planck et euh, je viens de Montréal et j'habite à New York. Go-to karaoke song? So I always look for a French Celine Dion song, and if they don't have it, I do one of her oldest hits that no one knows about. Let me be the one to love you more is my favorite one. Uh, is it true that you were blocked on Twitter by the president? It is true. For two years. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I couldn't see anything. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Liz. <laughs> really appreciate Thank you. it. You can follow Liz Plank on Twitter at Feministabulous. That's F-E-M-I-N-I-S-T-A-B-U-L-O-U-S. And stick around after the credits to hear about the women who paved the way for people like me and Liz in my conversation with Jenny Kaplan, the host of Encyclopedia Womanica. Our mission is to amplify underrepresented voices and introduce empathy into politics, business, and culture. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Special thanks to Sabine Jansen, Nora Kipnis, and the iHeart team, and Gail Reed. You can see a pic of me and Liz at the iHeart Studios on Twitter and Instagram at The Women Pod. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is a very special post roll of The Women, where I'm sitting down with the host of Encyclopedia Womanica, Jenny Kaplan. Hello. Can you tell me what you do and why it's important to you? I'm the co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network. I first started Wonder Media Network because my mom decided in 2017 to run for Congress. We launched our first podcast series called Women Belong in the House, with a capital H, where we told the stories of different women across the country who stepped up to run in 2018. And I looked around and felt like her story and the stories of many women like her and women throughout history weren't being told and weren't being told from a human perspective. So I quit my job at Bloomberg, which is where I worked before, and convinced my co-founder to join me and launched Wonder Media Network, where we, our mission is to amplify underrepresented voices and introduce empathy into politics, business, and culture. But what was the origin story for you starting uh, the daily history dose of Encyclopedia Womanica? We, on Encyclopedia Womanica, we... Every weekday, we tell the story of a woman from throughout history and around the world who are just like really doing incredible things that you might not have heard about before. I have the absolute privilege of co-creating Encyclopedia Womanica with my sister, Liz Kaplan, and we became really, really into this idea of featuring a different woman every day. At first, it was for a year. Now we're going to continue well beyond that year. One thing I really love about your show is how it's themed by month. And so 
witches and saints and beautiful minds. And I felt like I learned something about, you know, people that I actually thought I knew, like Sylvia Plath or Joan of Arc. But the way that you walk me through their story and you walk me through like their timeline, I feel like I'm actually there in history. And then some other leaders like An Nong from uh, between Vietnam and China and really being a warrior and like uh, the 10th century just blew me away. Every episode is only five minutes long, and we really are trying to figure out, like, who are these women as human beings? They're nuggets that you wouldn't have heard about before, even for the people who you think you might know everything about them. It's really fun to do, and it takes these people who maybe seem a little bit boring or from history or not some maybe overly academic, and it really brings them into a fun, short, dynamic format. And then February, we're doing uh, warriors and social justice warriors. So we're talking about how women's activism has changed throughout history from actual, like, warriors who fought wars <laughs> into sort of, like, people who still today are fighting for justice in perhaps a nonviolent way. How has your perspective on history or women in history changed since you started doing the show? It's more that I'm just like consistently in awe of how many women did incredible things and more and more frustrated about how little we learn about it. Um, we often get actually people who ask if we're going to run out of women because it's a <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a uh, every weekday we do an episode and it's sort of like a hilarious question, obviously, because it's there are essentially infinite women we could cover. But that's how we're often taught history is we learn about a lot of really impressive men and maybe like one or two women. So that's the thing that I am sort of in awe of over and over again is it's just like there are so many people who we don't remember but who did things that changed the course of history. Oh, I love that story. Thank <laughs> you for sharing that. Yeah. I'm so excited for the women listeners to add your show to their to their podcast regime. So where can people find your show and where can people follow you? People can find Encyclopedia Womanica and get their five-minute daily fix wherever they listen to podcasts. And also to follow Wonder Media Network more broadly, we're at WMN.media. And I'm at Jenny M. Kaplan. Hey!